Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. BiteClear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. Dennis, is Netanyahu done, or is there a chance we could see him back in the top job? I think that it's premature to write his political obituary. The more he tries to explode this current government, the more I think it makes him look more political and less like a leader. Mm. It makes the current government and Bennett look like they're trying to manage for the country. When Hamas built this vast network of tunnels, they used an enormous amount of cement, steel, iron, electrical wiring, and wood. Gaza is an impoverished place. All of this material that was used for building this vast underground tunnel network could have been used for construction and economic progress above ground, but that's not Hamas's priority. Because Netanyahu is now the head of the opposition and has stated he wants to bring down this government as soon as possible, just as he created kind of a glue for this group while he was in power, so long as he's the focal point of the opposition and trying to bring him down, he creates a glue for them while they're in power. Ambassador Dennis Ross is counselor and distinguished fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. He is one of our nation's leading experts on the Middle East and most experienced practitioners of policy toward the region, having worked at the highest levels of the U.S. government for multiple presidents of both parties. He joins us today to talk about Israeli politics, the latest round of fighting between Israel's and Palestinians, as well as the Biden administration's approach to Iran. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our sponsor. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. 
Dennis, thanks for joining us for a second time on Intelligence Matters. It is good to have you with us again. Mike, always a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me. So there's a lot to talk about, but I did want to take a minute and mention since the last time you were on the show, you published another book. This one is Be Strong and of Good Courage, How Israel's Most Important Leaders Shaped Its Destiny. Can you tell us a little bit about what the book is about and what are some of its most important themes? Well, the essence of the book uh, and really the premise of the book is that Israel is facing what are some pretty basic decisions about its identity and its character. If it stays on the path that it's been on, meaning if it keeps building outside of what I call the settlement blocks, uh, it'll become increasingly difficult to separate Israelis from Palestinians. In that case, uh, you really end up with one state, a binational state, not two states for two peoples. But it's a hard decision because the settler constituency is an important one politically. And therefore, it requires the leadership of a prime minister to say, okay, I'm going to make a, a historic decision to preserve who we are. And the book, in a sense, using that as a takeoff point, says, well, let's look historically at four Israeli prime ministers who were different ideologically but they define leadership very much the same way, which assumed, among other things, that you, you don't defer decisions, you don't avoid mm -hmm. decisions, you take them on, you educate your public as, as necessary. Uh, and as I said before, we're quite diverse. David Ben-Gurion, Menachem Begin, Yitzhak Rabin, and Ariel Sharon, diverse ideologically, but very similar in terms of defining what their role as prime ministers would be. And in a sense, this book is saying, let's look at what they did, who they were, how they themselves evolved, and can we see them as a model for Israel's prime minister today? Sounds very interesting. Sounds like a book worth reading, which is a great transition, actually, to the first topic that I wanted to chat with you about, which is Israeli politics. So Benjamin Netanyahu just finished 12 years as Israel's prime minister, a period of time that spanned nearly all of President Obama's two terms and the entirety of President Trump's term. And as you know, this was Netanyahu's second tenure as prime minister, having served three years from 1996 to 1999. He's now been replaced by Naftali Bennett, not a household name in the U.S. What can you tell us about Prime Minister Bennett, about Bennett the man and his politics? Bennett the man is someone who really represents, first of all, the next generation. Uh, he's 49 years old, so he's 22 years younger uh, than um, Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, his parents uh, came from the United States and made Aliyah to Israel. Uh, he was raised uh, during at least part of his, when he was growing up, uh, in San Francisco, which is where they're from. So he is a, a fluent uh, English speaker with very much a kind of an American inflection. He is someone who served in Israel's most elite commando unit. Uh, he is someone who started two high-tech companies, sold them both and made uh, an enormous amount of money. He very definitely was on the right side of the political spectrum. He used to, in many ways, press uh, Bibi Netanyahu from the right. He was chief of staff to Netanyahu at one point. Mm. Uh, and uh, he is, from those I can say who served with him in Sayyid Matkal, which is, as I said, the most elite unit, some of whom I know, they, they all say that he's actually very pragmatic. My own 
experience with him uh, is also one where I have the sense that his ideology is real, but he also believes in solving problems. Uh, and in some ways, we see that even in terms of his readiness to go ahead and form a government that is a historic government from any standard, because for the first time in Israel's history, one, you have an Arab party that is a member, a formal member of the coalition, part of the coalition signed agreement, uh, never happened before. You had Arab parties that supported Israeli governments from the outside and helped to keep them in power, which was true for Yitzhak Rabin's government, but they were never formally a part of the government. So historic threshold has been crossed at, an, at a very interesting time because in the most recent conflict, there was terrible intercommunal violence uh, that really shocked most Israelis. And here you see in the aftermath of that, you suddenly see uh, an effort, I think, to, to build bridges, really profound bridges. And it's a government as well that has two right-wing parties, I would say three center parties, one's a center left, uh, meaning uh, Yeshatid, which is Yair Lapid's party, is probably a center-left party. Blue-White is probably a centrist party. Uh, Israel Bateno, which is Lieberman's party, is probably a center-right party. And then you have uh, two left parties. The Labor Party has become much more left, and, and then you have merits. So it's an unusual government in terms of covering the whole spectrum politically, but then also having an air party. Many doubt that it will be able to sustain itself because there isn't a whole lot of ideological convergence, and there is an acceptance on one thing, which is opposition to Bibi Netanyahu. I'll just conclude this thought by saying the following. Because Netanyahu is now the head of the opposition and has so clearly stated he wants to bring down this government as soon as possible, just as he created kind of a glue for this group while he was in power, so long as he's the focal point of the opposition and trying to bring him down, he creates a glue for them while they're in power. So going back to your book, is there a possibility here that Bennett could be one of these leaders that you're looking for? You know, we always look at leaders who grow in office. Uh, and I do think Bennett has that potential. Uh, he's very smart. Uh, and, and now he's put in a position where uh, certainly part of his traditional base has been alienated from him. Uh, he is presenting himself as someone I have to say, using language that is very Biden-esque in terms of saying we're going to represent everybody, those who are against us, those who are for us. It's time for Israel to change the character of our, our politics, get back to who we've always been. Uh, just because someone disagrees with you, they're not an enemy, they're not a traitor. Uh, and the first thing he said when he convened his cabinet for the first time was he said, look, we're, we're all going to have to soften our ideology uh, and adjust to be able to work together. We're here to work for the country. Uh, and it suggests, at least in the early going, he's adopting a posture that, that promises potentially to show that he can be one of those who can measure up to what would be the standard of leadership. We'll see. And we haven't seen enough policy decisions yet to give us any indication. Would that be fair? That's very fair. This is... Uh, this is so early. No big decisions have been made. They, a challenge that this government has made for itself. There hasn't been a budget approved for the last couple of years. Uh, and so they've, they've established as part of their coalition agreement 
this is what they will produce. And, you know, it's not an accident that the budget hasn't been produced. It's, it is not a simple thing to reconcile what are all the competing interests. And so I think being able to achieve a budget, a two-year budget, that will be significant. Some of the personnel appointments will be significant. But, you know, they're going to be inevitably, every Israeli government will face uh, unexpected challenges, surprises, and how this government copes with them will go a long way to determining whether Naftali Bennett as prime minister measures up to those figures that, uh, that we wrote about in the book. You talked about the stability of his government and the importance of having Netanyahu there, right, in terms of the stability. What are the risks that his government faces going forward here in terms of whether it can hang on or not? What will be the challenges? You know, the, there'll be two kinds of challenges. One will be internal. Uh, there will be those, uh, you know, connected probably to Prime Minister, former Prime Minister Netanyahu, who will look for all sorts of opportunities to throw in landmines uh, to try to play on the fissures, the inherent fissures. Because as I said, you, you have left to right and you have an Arab party. Uh, there will be those who will, you know, will try to push, uh, I think, uh, illegal settlement building, or they'll try to push for a demolition of uh, illegal construction by, by Palestinians. Uh, they'll push what they think are those basic fissures within this government, basic ideological divides, and they'll try to play on them. So they'll, they'll certainly look to create crises uh, that will make it difficult for one side or the other to go along. Uh, already, as an example, there is uh, there's an issue related to development in the Negev as it relates to the Bedouin, uh, and there's a there's a push on the part of the right to try to force this as an early issue uh, to force some Bedouin out, and and obviously that would create a fundamental problem for Mansour Abbas and the the Ram Party, which is the Arab Party. So that there are examples like that. There's a whole question of what we've seen: uh, will there be evictions in Sheikh Jarrah? Now, that's really a Supreme Court decision, but how is that issue going to be handled? Uh, it is interesting that this government went along with the, the decision of the previous government to allow the, the march of the flags. This is something that is done normally on Jerusalem Day, which commemorates uh, the 1967 war and the reunification of Jerusalem. Uh, the one thing they did is the, the police allowed this to go forward with a slightly different route, even though Hamas had made all sorts of threats. The new public security minister is uh, Omar Barlev, uh, who is from the Labor Party, and he made the decision for this to go ahead. But you could see for people on the left side of this coalition, this was probably not a simple issue because yeah. they worried about what the implications of it were. And yet we already see here's an example of where they figured a way to work together and they will face more of these kinds of hard choices. Dennis, is Netanyahu done, or is there a chance we could see him back in the top job? Uh, I think that it's premature to write his political obituary, uh, but I do think that the image, his imagery of being a magician, that he could always pull a rabbit out of the hat and somehow survive, that's taken a hit. The more, as I said earlier, the more he tries to... Uh, explode this current government, uh, the more I think it makes him look more political and less like a leader. Mm. It makes the current government and Bennett 
look like they're trying to manage for the country. I, if he succeeds, I'm not sure that it ends up translating into anything except a new election where with four elections, he couldn't put together a government. And so it's not so easy to see if there's an election that he's able to put together such a government. So while I'm not prepared to write his political obituary yet, I think it's a real uphill climb for him. And I haven't even mentioned anything about the trial uh, that, that he right, is, right. he's been indicted. He's, there's a trial uh, looking at uh, three different uh, indictments against him. Uh, and so we don't know what the future of that's going to be. That trial likely will drag on for a while. So I, you know, I, I wouldn't say that he's necessarily done, but it's not so easy to see his pathway back. If he is done, can you reflect a little bit on what his legacy as prime minister will be? How will historians look back at his 15 years as prime minister? He is the longest serving Israeli prime minister. Uh, David Ben-Gurion was 13 years. David Ben-Gurion resigned in 1963 when he was still a relatively, uh, he wasn't, he wasn't that old at that time. Uh, uh, but he made the decision to, to leave. Uh, in the case of Prime Minister Netanyahu, 15 years is obviously an extraordinary tenure. On the one hand, I would say on the positive side of the ledger, anybody who's been to Israel and seen that it is truly the startup nation, you have to give Netanyahu a lot of credit. You know, he carried out a series of economic reforms, did a lot of privatization, created all sorts of incentives, deregulation to get out of the way of innovation, uh, and he certainly contributed a lot to this. I wouldn't say he's solely responsible for it because a lot of, a lot of the sources of development that express themselves in terms of making Israel a startup nation were actually done during Prime Minister Rabin's time. But there's no escaping the fact that Netanyahu gave this a big boost. Mm -hmm. Israel dramatically developed. Uh, anybody who comes to Israel sees this is a very advanced country in every sense, cutting edge in every sense. Uh, and he certainly deserves uh, some credit for that, it's in, and deservedly so. I would say also uh, he was very effective. And when I, drew, I draw a distinction when I talk about him. When it comes to dealing with the Arabs, he was always strategic. When it comes to dealing with the Palestinians, he was always political. What I mean by that, with the Arabs, he engaged in all sorts of very practical, quiet, under the table, below the radar screen cooperation that built actually, that built on what were his recognition that there were converging threat perceptions as it related to radical Islamists, whether they were the Iranians or whether they were the Al Qaeda or Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, he understood this and he found ways quietly to cultivate relations with the Arabs. And ultimately, that contributed to what we saw with the Abraham Accords. So that too, you have to give him you have to give him credit for that. Uh, where I think uh, he I think he uh, does less well, uh, I think he did something that I worry about. Israel has always been, at least historically, an American interest, not a Republican or a Democratic interest, and he. He undermined, in many respects, Israel's bipartisan relationship with the United States. Even before Trump, who he embraced in a way that was probably excessive. Any Israeli prime minister would have wanted to get along with an American president, and especially someone like Trump. 
but there's a difference between getting along and so enthusiastically embracing. And the, the impulse to sort of line up with the Republicans uh, in a way that was uh, left little to the imagination, that has a longer term consequence. And I think we're seeing some of it now. Uh, certainly the progressive wing of the Democratic Party has become deeply critical of Israel mm -hmm. uh, in a way that almost seems reflexive as opposed to thinking through exactly what the Israelis are doing, what the Palestinians are doing and the like. So I, and here I think that he bears a lot of the responsibility for that. And I think he also bears a lot of the responsibility for putting Israel on a track where it runs the risk of becoming a binational state. What motivated me to write Be Strong and of Good Courage was precisely the concern that Israel's on a track by default of becoming a binational state uh, unless in fact it makes some conscious decisions to change course. And that's really, again, I think one of, one of his legacies, his successors, I'm hopeful, can undo it. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Dennis Ross. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. So Dennis, good transition to the second topic I wanted to chat about, which are the recent clashes between Hamas and Israel, which you referenced earlier. Can you explain what happened, perhaps from the perspective of both sides? Yes. And so, and it's really important to put this in perspective. There are there's a backdrop to to what recently happened. It starts with Mahmoud Abbas canceling the elections. Ninety three percent of the Palestinians who were eligible to vote registered for for these elections. These would have been the first elections since two thousand seven. The fact that ninety three percent registered to vote tells you a lot about how much the Palestinian public wanted the election, not because they had high expectations that everything was going to be transformed, but they clearly wanted, uh, they wanted to be able to express themselves and express their voices. Now, the cancellation of that created a sense of opportunity for Hamas. Uh, there's a second element that created a, a sense of possibility for Hamas. And that was, uh, there is a, a longstanding legal issue affecting the neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah. This is a, in, in Jerusalem, just outside the old city, meaning outside the wall part of, of Jerusalem. There's a neighborhood called Sheikh Jarrah. There are several families that moved into Sheikh Jarrah, which was uh, after the 1948 war, the Jordanians took over East Jerusalem and they moved a number of families who were refugees into houses that had been owned by by the Jews prior to, Jewish families prior to uh, the war in 1948, the, what Israel defines as its war of independence. Uh, so they don't necessarily have legal title. There are, there, it, there were, these homes were owned by, uh, 
by Jewish families prior to 48. There is a, a right-wing settler group that seeks to settle in all the areas, uh, including right. these Arab areas. And they, they were able to buy uh, these properties actually from a trust that owned them. And they've been pushing for evictions. This has worked its way through the courts. And the lower level courts have found that these families should be evicted. The Supreme Court has not acted on it yet. Now, this is a classic case where technically the, you know, this issue viewed in narrow terms legally, uh, the, is, is those who are pushing for it might be right. But when you deal with issues of Jerusalem, you want to be wise, not just right. right. Uh, here's a case where there are two issues that will always create uh, an electric response that takes on a life of its own when it comes to Jerusalem. One is evictions, displacement of Palestinians. The other is the religious sites, and that leads to, uh, to the third issue uh, that, in a sense, helped to prompt all this. And that was that there were disturbances uh, on Jerusalem Day, uh, and rocks were being thrown. The way the, the Temple Mount of the Harmal Sharif this is, it's, this is a platform uh, on the surface where there are two mosques, Al-Aska Mosque, the third holiest site in Islam, and the Dome of the Rock. Below it is known as the Kotel, and this is where the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall right, is. Right. So there were thousands of Jews down there playing, and stones were being thrown over the side. You get hit by a stone you know, from 300 feet above you, hit you right. in the head, it's going to kill you, or certainly it can. So Israeli police went to stop the stone throwing, but... For some reason, it, it mystifies me. They went into the Alaska Mosque. Now, they claim because rocks and metal bars were, were accumulated there. But, you know, this where the mosque is, is far removed. I mean, I joke that George Washington couldn't throw a stone <laughs> from there to the Kotel. So what you wanted to do was you wanted to stop those who were throwing the stones. But for some reason, there was, ended up being an assault into the Alaska Mosque. Uh, and... This went viral, as you might imagine, because everybody who's there has a phone and they become a reporter. And that just set everything aflame. Now, Hamas sought to take advantage of all this to make themselves a defender of Jerusalem, to seize a march on gaining control over the Palestinian movement more generally. And so they launched rockets against Jerusalem, which, by if you think about it, there are 360,000 Palestinians who live in Jerusalem. If those rockets actually hit there, they might well have killed the Palestinians, but that wasn't their concern. What right. Hamas wanted to do was make a statement, seize, seize themselves and present themselves as the protector of Jerusalem. They knew crossing that threshold, Israel would respond in a very tough way, and they didn't care. They knew that the Gazans would be the ones who paid the price for it, and they didn't care. They wanted to score political points. So Israel responded uh, with rockets. First of all, I mean, with not, not with rockets. They, Israel responded to these rockets by carrying out attacks, going after the military infrastructure within Gaza. Now, Hamas builds uh, a vast military infrastructure. And I want to put this, Mike, in some perspective. In 2014, uh, there was a conflict that went on for 51 days between Israel and Hamas. At the time, at the end of that, Hamas had 3,300, about 3,300 rockets left. Uh, when this, during this conflict, when it began, they probably had about 30,000. So they used from 2014 until 2021, 
massive rearmament. And these rockets, by the way, were more had more payload, more range, and 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 uh, were more effective. In addition, they built a very extensive network, underground network, of tunnels. Now the tunnels weren't there to protect uh, their people. They were there to protect their fighters, their leadership, their command control. And they're built into uh, what are areas that are not only completely civilian, but they build them under hospitals, under schools. Uh, they build them in places and they fire rockets from places that, in a sense, challenge the Israelis to hit uh, and pair the stigma when they do. Yeah. So Hamas has basically positioned themselves to target Israeli civilians with their rockets on the one hand, and in a sense, try to use their population as human shields on the other and hope that Israel pays the price for it, which in many ways they did uh, in this conflict. I just want to make one last point on this and I'll pause. When Hamas built this vast network of, of tunnels, they used an enormous amount of cement, steel, iron, electrical wiring, and wood. Now, Gaza is an impoverished place. Yes. All of this material that was used for, for building this vast underground tunnel network could have been used for construction and development uh, and economic progress above ground. But that's not Hamas's priority. Uh, and they have kept Gaza in a state of deep impoverishment even prior to this conflict. Dennis, is there a way to fit what happened here into the broader narrative of the peace process for the last 20 years? I think there is. There was an effort when Hamas took over Gaza in a coup in 2007. And the, the logic of the effort was, let's show the contrast between the West Bank where the Palestinian Authority is, let's show how they develop and that they offer a future, and let's show the failure of Hamas in terms of they, they offer nothing but, but pain. Uh, that was a good theory, but it never, it never fully materialized, in part because the, the PA is far too corrupt, uh, in part because, to be fair, uh, the Israelis have not created the kind of space uh, for the PA that would, could have made it more effective. I would say that we have too often spent too much time riveted on let's solve the whole conflict when the circumstances weren't there to solve them. But what we should have done, done is create the conditions where Palestinians generally could have advanced, where they could have had increasing political space to make decisions, where we were investing in that, in a sense, working with the Israelis to give them greater political and economic space to create some successful models for the Palestinians so they could see what could be achieved. Enough wasn't done in that regard. Too often we went for, let's go solve Jerusalem, refugees, uh, borders and security. Uh, and it's not that those shouldn't be solved, but you always have to recognize, you know, as, a, as a diplomat, as a negotiator, you have to recognize what you can achieve at a particular juncture and what you can't achieve. I would much prefer us to create a new baseline which makes what isn't possible today possible tomorrow. Mm. Uh, and in a sense, we have too often focused on the end game when we didn't have the circumstances or conditions 
that allowed us to move towards that end game. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Dennis, maybe we can switch in the last segment here to talk a little bit about Iran. We just had a presidential election, and we don't know the outcome because we're actually taping this a day before the election. But I'm wondering how you would describe Iranian politics going into the election. There's no doubt that the balance of forces within the elite within Iran, and there is such a thing as elite politics in Iran. We have seen with people like the current President Rouhani and his foreign minister Zarif, these are people who believe in the Islamic Republic, but they're more pragmatic. They believe that the Islamic Republic can advance by being more integrated into the, into the international community and the international financial system. The Supreme Leader, who is unfortunately, from this standpoint, the decision maker, he doesn't view that. He, see, he sees the need uh, to preserve an Islamic Republic and its ideology by having enemies. And the enemies justify the kind of strict internal controls. Uh, and we've seen the balance of forces shift in favor of those who embody the ideology, the resistance ideology that the Supreme Leader uh, has always promoted. So we've seen a shift. The Revolutionary Guard has much greater power. Uh, it's clear that Ibrahim Raisi is the favorite candidate. So we'll, we'll see uh, whether he actually wins. Uh, but he's clearly the favorite candidate. The, the media gives him dramatically more attention. He's obviously the choice of the Supreme Leader. He's the head of the judiciary. This is someone who, when he was a much younger man, presided over revolutionary courts that put tens of thousands of people to death uh, in the late 1980s because they were seen as real or imagined enemies uh, of, the, uh, of the Islamic Republic. Uh, and so he, he comes from the what's known as the principalist side of the arguments there, and whether he wins or someone else wins, it's still the Supreme Leader who makes the decisions, right. uh, and it's going to be a more hardline government than we've seen. Now, the question is, does that make a big difference practically? My own view is they still want sanctions to be relieved, but they're trying to signal that they're in no hurry to have them relieved, and they're trying to build pressure on us by pressing ahead with their nuclear program. I believe we'll probably still get back into the, the Iran nuclear deal, the JCPOA, uh, sometime this year. And the challenge for the, the Biden administration will be, how do they retain leverage to try to do what they, what they seek, which is a longer and stronger deal? And what do they need to be able to do to counter what the Iranians are doing in the region? The Trump administration applied what they call maximum pressure on the Iranians, which was really maximum economic pressure. They did squeeze them economically, but it didn't change any of Iran's behavior. They didn't stop any of their active support uh, for Hezbollah, 
for Hamas, Islamic Jihad, for any of the Shia militias uh, within Iraq, maybe they couldn't provide uh, as, as, as wide array of material resources, but they still provided. Uh, they still, you know, Hamas was still getting money from them. They were effusive in their praise of the Iranians after the conflict. Hezbollah was probably still getting $400 million a year. The Shia militias uh, within Iraq were still being supported. So they didn't change their behavior. What we've seen is if you're going to be effective with the Iranians, you need a strategy that, that applies economic, political, and even uh, at least the threat of military pressure. Uh, and you need to create an isolation of the Iranians. Uh, and I hope that the Biden administration, and I suspect that this is the way they're thinking about it, understands that you leave the Iranians a way out, but you also have to keep the pressure on them. And it's more effective when it's not the U.S. acting alone. Dennis, why have the hardliners gained strength over the past few years? What's behind that? I think there's probably a couple of factors that have contributed to it. I do think that the, the Trump policies did contribute to it because it, you know, here was the argument of those who said, we can advance if we do deals with the, uh, with the Americans in the West. So they did the JCPOA. We, one can debate whether this was the best possible deal or not. But from an Iranian standpoint, they lived up to it. Trump pulled out of it. They paid a price for it. And it undercut the arguments of those who said we can gain by doing these deals. So that certainly, that certainly contributed, I think, to their strengthening. Uh, I think, though, that what, what also contributed to the strengthening is that, you know, the, the basic desire to dominate the region is still, you know, the, the most important driving factor in Iran's behavior. Uh, and inevitably, that tends to push them in directions that's going to produce a backlash against them. Uh, and, you know, one of the interesting things about the, the interview, the set of interviews that Foreign Minister Zarif gave that was supposed to be for a, a, the a kind of oral history of the Rouhani presidency, where he was very candid in terms of saying that the Revolutionary Guard consistently undercut his diplomacy. Uh, he didn't know what was going on in Syria. Here's what they were doing that made it much harder to achieve the kind of things he wanted. I think the point to bear in mind here is that people like Rouhani and Zarif were permitted to do certain things like negotiate an Iran nuclear deal, but they weren't the ones who shaped the policy uh, when it came to the rest of the region. Right. And what I'm suggesting is that context plays into the hands of the hardliners because sooner or later it produces responses. Now, the, the really interesting question is, can you devise a policy where you can create a set of choices for the for the Iranians, where it becomes clear that what the hardliners are doing are costing, uh, unmistakably costing Iran, uh, versus what's available if you if you change the course and the direction. So, from a policy perspective, assuming we get a new nuclear agreement, which seems likely to me, sounds like it seems likely to you as well. I guess the question is, how do you? How do you have a nuclear agreement and then keep the pressure on them from a regional perspective? How do you balance that from a policy perspective? Yeah, I think what you do is you, you, you decide to take a page from their book. Their book is the nuclear file is one thing. We're free to do whatever we want in the region. And the answer to that should be, okay, the nuclear file is one thing, and therefore we're free to do whatever we want in the region. And so, you know, if you think about it, everywhere where the Iranians are in the region, 
you know, in Iraq, uh, in Syria, in Lebanon, in Yemen, uh, you either have a failed state, a failing state, or a state that is largely paralyzed because of what the Iranians are doing. So I think one of the things to do is we should be competing in the region. We should be highlighting their failures. Now, again, I said there's a political dimension, there's an economic dimension, there's a military dimension. We have the, Israel is now uh, in CENTCOM, Central Command, which means we could do all sorts of planning where we, with the Israelis and the key Arab states, we could do contingency planning to focus on what are the options that the Iranian Shia militias are likely to engage in. Let's develop plans to counter them. Let's raise the cost to the Iranians of what they're doing. Uh, you can do this in a variety of ways. Let's do more to create uh, the ability to counter their ballistic missiles, create a more of an integrated missile defense network, do more to promote uh, counter cruise missile, counter drone technologies and cooperation, uh, build on the Abraham Accord, build that coalition, widen it. You know, when you take these kinds of steps, uh, when you create, in a sense, a counter coalition, you're also enhancing your potential for deterrence because the more you show the Iranians we're going to raise the cost to you of what you're doing in the region. The more you give them incentive uh, to look for different ways to operate. Dennis, thank you so much for joining us. It's always great to hear your views. They're so thoughtful. And let me remind our listeners again of your most recent book, Be Strong and of Good Courage, How Israel's Most Important Leaders Shaped Its Destiny. Given the political changes in Israel, it sounds like the perfect time to read it. So thanks again for joining us, Dennis. Mike, it's always a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. That was Dennis Ross. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. This show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Jake Rosen, Paulina Smolinski, and Ashley Armstrong. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS Audio. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.